what the heck is happening in California and specifically with the Silicon Valley Bank? And is your bank safe? We're actually going to go through all of those questions because there's so much analysis going on right now. We are going to break this down in a few simple, easy to understand points. Why did it happen? What's going on right now? What is the government doing about it? Will what the government is doing about it actually help or hurt? And what does this mean for your bank potentially? All of that coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. And I want to thank everyone in our volley chat who brought this topic up to us. And that is why we are doing this episode today. If you aren't already a member of our community chat on volley, I hope you'll go to the link in the description of the show. Join, introduce yourself. We'd love to get to meet you there. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us on Making the Argument once again today, guys. I'm very, very excited for this episode because this isn't something that I commonly talk about, but it's a huge issue and I feel like it's going to have significant ripples down the road. So I'm really excited to hear, especially what Nick and Christian have to say about it. So let's get into it. Well, I think first things first, we also need to tell people, if you stick around, we're also going to get into a potential Thomas Massey conspiracy theory, which, oh, wow. of course, at this point, theory or prediction. Right? I, 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 don't, I heard a tidbit of this conspiracy theory, oh, not man. all of it, but I'm fascinated to know more. I it's, think Massey it, might it, be It'll only take, and we'll bring it up at the end of this episode, but it'll yeah. only take a few minutes to explain it. And when it hits you, you're going to be like... Oh my what gosh, the... that actually might be you know what was going on. High there. degree of plausibility. Yes. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> I'm not saying that's what happened, but it's a high degree of plausibility. Well, I mean, I think the first question a lot of people have asked, and, and most people I think kind of understand this if you've seen um, you know, It's a Wonderful Life or whatnot. <laughs> like, what, what is a run on the bank? Well, the vast majority of banks within the United States, the banks that you commonly do business with are what we call fractional reserve banks, which means when you put your money into the bank, it doesn't all sit in a vault somewhere waiting for you to come and pick it out, right? The banks are usually required by law, although there were some changes that we're going to get into later, usually required by law to have a fractional reserve. So let's just say if they have 100% of deposits, 90 or 10% of those deposits need to be sitting you know, within the bank's control, they need to be liquid, which is to say that they can hand it out when depositors come and ask for it. Now, most of the money people put in banks, right? They don't ask for it all at once. And so as long as they have that 10%, you know, they, they can hand out and there's no problem. The reason why you have a run on the bank is when all of a sudden a bank um, starts having problems with liquidity and being able to give money to people that are requesting it. So the more people you have showing up to request larger and larger amounts of money, that fractional reserve that they have it is, is eaten up and now they have a problem. Well, the moment somebody goes public and says, I'm trying to pull my money out of the bank and they won't give it to me, everyone else is like, what the living hell? And they're trying to come and now they want to pull their money out of the bank because you know, again, there, there's a problem, right? Banks can run into trouble where they depositors can lose their money. And so that's where everybody starts coming at once to pull it out. They don't have enough reserves to be able to cover it. They're not able to go to other banks or even, or, or even the uh, reserve at that point to be able to cover those losses. And that's what we have right now. You have a run on the bank, which is causing the bank to collapse. And that's why the FDIC has come on and essentially taken over. And this is with SVB, correct? Yeah, that's with Silicon Valley Bank. All right. So it's the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. I think it was the 16th largest bank within the United States. It was a lot of, uh, a lot of companies, a lot of uh, large, mid-sized small businesses uh, had invested with Silicon Valley Bank. That was kind of like their their niche, right? They they invested startups. in startups. Yeah, a lot of these startups and and whatnot, which can be you know high risk, high reward uh, investing. But that's actually not why they're they're in a lot of trouble right now. Oh um, no, not at all. No. Like what what happened with. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank was it started off as Nick it, it, when Nick explained what is a, a, a bank run he basically said that it, it begins with a liquidity problem 
this started as a liquidity problem and it ended as a as a solvency problem. I mean, the bank, you know, basically went insolvent. And what happened was is that, oh, man, okay, suddenly the bank magically finds that it is in possession of $3 billion more cash than it had the year before, yeah. doubled the number of reserves, um, doubled the number of re- uh, the, the amount of revenue that the bank brought in. And we might, we'll get into this podcast, how that happened, right? Almost overnight, Silicon Valley Bank finds just bucket loads of money being hauled in from, from depositors. They don't know what to do with that money. Um, so they throw it at basically anything that they could possibly throw it at. Uh, I mean, they, at one point they were investing millions of dollars in speculative biotech companies that have zero revenue because they, they just had so much money they didn't know what to do with it. So when and keep keep and this is an important part here because people ask, well, like, well, why did they spend it all? Banks are incentivized to invest money. That's how the bank makes money. So so think of it a little bit like when you go um, uh, when when you go to like a financial advisor. Right. And that financial advisor, you know, um, there, there's a couple of different ways to do it. But one of the ways to do it is you let them invest your money and then they get a percentage. Well, if they're not investing your money, if it's just sitting somewhere and they get money based off of, you know, good returns on investment, they make no money. That, right. The bank doesn't make any money by letting your money sit there in a vault somewhere. They make money by, you know, ostensibly wisely investing it, getting a return, right. And then giving you your money whenever you ask for it. Right. That, that is, that is the whole business model for a fractional reserve bank. So their incentive is not to keep money sitting there. Their incentive is to invest it. So if they've got billions of dollars coming in, right, all of a sudden they're going to start looking for more things to potentially invest in. Yeah. So, so F SVB had invested a lot of money in different things. What led to the situation where they were not able to pay out depositors? Okay. So I just mentioned that they were throwing money at things like biotech, but that was only like 12% of their entire, all their assets out of the 200 plus billion dollars that they had to, to basically throw at anything they wanted to, they threw something like North of 85 billion into treasury bonds. But here's the funny thing. Most of the money was coming in at the same time that treasuries were going to zero. Okay, what is a treasury bond? A treasury bond is debt that is issued by the federal government. So you you notice that we talk about federal spending and federal debt and things like that. Right. Usually what we're talking about, the way the government acquires debt like that is that they say, hey, we want to spend more money than we have. And so we're going to issue a treasury bond. And we're going to give you a certain degree of interest on this treasury bond. Now, there's there's a wide degree of options right here, but the shorter the shorter you get the bond for, the lower your uh, rate of return is, right? The time lower period. Your, yes, you say the short. shorter time period, right? So if if I get a treasury bond for a long period of time, I get a higher interest rate for my money. If it's a shorter period of time, it's a shorter interest rate for my money. But this is how the government gets money to then go and spend on all the crap it's been funny. If when we take on foreign debt. Are those foreign countries also purchasing treasury yes, bonds? Yes, okay, yes. all right. So, uh, so yeah. like Japan is the largest holder of treasury bonds in, in, in any, terms of foreign. I could go buy a treasury bond. Yeah, yes, you correct? could. Okay. I wouldn't recommend it. No. I mean, we don't. <laughs> here's the thing: we don't offer financial advice on this show. But you know who else shouldn't be offering financial advice? Jim Cramer. Cramer. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> who went out there when Silicon Valley Bank was trading at north of two hundred dollars a share? Yeah. And was recommending it just a few months ago yeah. as like one of his top picks in the banking well, sector, it, right? Right before it went under. But but to answer your question about like how they became insolvent, mm-hmm. so 
it wasn't that they didn't have any money. It's that the money was locked up in non-cash assets. So it was first a liquidity problem that became an insolvency problem. The reason they had a liquidity problem was because they had this money in in different things. Some of it was, I I said earlier, it was in like biotech. Some of it was in other aspects of Silicon Valley. One of the things they were doing was, was, you know, buying up some of the the companies operating in the same industry that they were funding because mm-hmm. they wanted to, they wanted a piece of that. Um, but one of the big things that they were doing was they were chasing yield. They they were trying to get a higher interest rate, so they were buying long term treasury ten year bonds, treasuries, ten year treasury bonds at like a one to two percent interest rate because this was back when interest rates were basically zero, right? And on paper, that sounds well. That's such a safe investment, right? Yeah. The federal government's always going to pay its debts, so so you're guaranteed not to lose money. Yeah, if you hold it to a maturity, if you hold it for ten years, what happens if I'm a bank? You give me ten dollars. I take that ten dollars and I buy a ten year treasury bond. But let's say eight years into that process, you want the money back. Well. I have to now sell the bond because I, I can't wait the extra two years for the bond to expire and then me to get paid the, back the money at that point. When the bond expires, you would get the money back. But the bonds hadn't expired yet, right? They hadn't been buying these short-term bonds, you know, a couple months or maybe a year. They were buying 10-year, two-year treasury bonds. But then suddenly, so many of their customers wanted their money back in large part because Silicon Valley, in case you haven't been paying attention, they've been hurting a yeah, lot lately. They're doing bad. So and, let me get this straight though. There's a correlation between rising inflation, um, the well, rising, in, interest rates. In, rising interest rates and the, the amount of money they had actually invested into treasury bonds actually going down and yes. not up. Yeah. So, so we if, actually if, have a video from a guy named Joseph Carlson that I would love to play where he explains in very simple language, yeah. how this process can lead to a bank that invests heavily in the federal government's own debt, how it could basically ruin them. Okay. Um, so go ahead and play this, Hamilton, and we'll tell Nick or I will we'll tell you at what point we want to cut it. Cool. Industry. Now, what's happened over the past couple of years with Silicon Valley Bank? You can look at a timeline here related to their actual revenue. Let's go ahead and just look at the revenue chart of this bank. I think this paints a pretty clear picture. For a long period of time, they're growing at pace, and then you see a speed up in their growth. Now, this is a good thing if you're this bank. You're taking on more deposits. That's how they get their revenue. They take on deposits. They use that money to invest in other places. So they're getting more and more deposits, more and more revenue, making more and more money. And then in 2019, from 2019 to 2020, the revenue basically doubles. In like over a year, just over a year, the revenue doubles. So their level of deposits is going up at an astronomical pace, almost an unhealthy pace. See, and this is where this bank- Pause right here. I I want to point something out because I I really like what Joseph Carlson has to say on this. There's 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 terms he uses right here that always bother me. He says, it's growing at an unhealthy pace. I want to make sure everyone understands something. It's not so much that a company grows at an unhealthy pace- What's unhealthy is the nature of the growth. If you're growing really, really fast because you're doing, you're incredibly productive and people like your stuff and they're buying it and, and it's exchange of, of currency for productive capacity, that's fine. Grow as fast as you can. It's not the pace of the growth that was unhealthy. What it was is their pace of the growth should have caused people to wonder why is all of a sudden they get all this, this money in here? And that's where you start to question the nature of the growth. Right? And, not, and for the audio the listeners, for, for, for those who are just tuning into us on audio, 
the chart that Carlson is showing us here, and, and, and he's about to explain the problem with, with how the bank imploded in terms of the liquidity problem, but the chart that he's showing with the revenue, it is an exponential growth. Yeah, it's it is like high. each year it's it's doubling over the previous year basically and it begins lo and behold around 2011 2012 that's right when quantitative easing kicks in yeah um which again we, we could get to in a little bit but what he's trying think, to think show of quantitative easing as the government printing more money and then injecting it into mostly yeah. the stock market yeah and who benefited the most from that? It was tech companies in Silicon Valley, which were the primary customers of Silicon Valley Bank. So suddenly these companies have more money to play around with because the Federal Reserve is printing money and basically giving it to them. And where are they doing? They're storing this money in this bank. So this bank is now seeing just an astronomical increase in deposits. And they're not just going to let it sit there and depreciate. They want a return on that as well, which is why they're throwing it at anything that they could find. They're basically recklessly speculating this free money that they think that they're getting. In reality, the bank's increase in growth, it had, it had been growing at a steady but slow, healthy rate, to use that term, for a long time. And then suddenly about 12 years ago, right after the great financial crash in 2008, it just kicks into overdrive. And then it, and then it just, it, it, you know, so goes is, parabolic it, in, in 2020. So it's important to understand that what happened was, is that the, the government printed a crap ton of money, right? Mm -hmm. Let's just put this simple. The government printed a crap ton of money. Typically the institutions that benefit the most initially from this sort of inflationary monetary policy are banks and, and the stock market. Right. That's that's who typically benefits from it. So that's why you see it's not that the pace was unhealthy. It's that the nature of why they were getting these deposits was unhealthy and it took place rapidly. It took place very, very quickly. Yes, it's it's their their deposits grew not because the economy was growing naturally through innovation, expansion, economic growth more people going to work and inventing new things. That was all happening yeah. throughout history, right? But a 50% growth in one year, that was not because the economy was booming at the same time that it was locked down in yeah. 2020 when everything was shut down and people were getting fired left and right. This is not the economy growing. This is the Federal Reserve printing money and pumping it into the system to inflate a bubble. And this is the bubble ex basically expanding outwards. So keep, keep in mind two things here that are really important, right? The government's engaging in inflationary monetary policy. A bank makes money not off of sitting on the cash. In fact, they're losing money by just letting it sit there. They're not just, they're not just staying even. They're losing money because inflation is, is already happening. But then you have extra inflation taking place. So they have an incentive to invest it, right? So now we're starting to see how inflation is not just the, the price of the you know, corn on the cob you were buying at the store is going up. You're creating a whole host of other incentives within the marketplace that are not necessarily healthy. So let's yeah. go ahead and get back to uh, what he- One point I want to make real quick. I like to make this point at every point I can. There's a direct correlation between inflation and monetary policy and the rich getting richer here. Oh, absolutely. In yeah. fact, there's been peer-reviewed studies that show that quantitative easing, which again is a fancy term for printing extra money, that that actually increases wealth inequality yeah. because the people that benefit from that money are the people that already have yeah. massive investments in the stock market or real estate or whatever it is. So Carlson's going to explain, they have all this money now, right? Now, what are they going to do with it? We've already said on the show, a lot of that money went into buying treasury bonds. So how did that end up hurting them? He's going to explain exactly how that happened. And into trouble. Silicon Valley Bank was getting an influx of deposits 
customers were giving them their money and they had to decide what to do with that money. They have this huge cash pile of money that they need to put to work to make more money. That is the entire business model of banks. They take on deposits and they use that money to invest in different things to earn even more money. Now, they have a choice here. They can either invest in short duration assets, things like one to three month treasuries, but that doesn't pay a lot of interest. It's really not that exciting. You can't make as much money doing that. Or they could invest in two-year treasuries. That pays higher interest. Or they could invest in 10-year treasuries. That pays even higher amounts of interest. But keep in mind, the longer the duration, the more risk. Because you're stuck into this duration for a long period of time. And that brings on more interest rate risk. Well, what Silicon Valley Bank did was they invested in longer duration assets. They invested in the two years, the 10 years, and longer ones rather than the one to three month ones. This locked them into those interest rates for a longer period of time. Now, what's happened over the past year that's caused this bank so much trouble? Pa it's interest quick. rates going up. For everyone watching on the radio, they, like this chart is very instructive <laughs> because what, what he's showing on this chart, remember I talked about there's this inverse relation between the, the value of treasury bonds and the interest rate market, right? So if interest rates are really low, um, it, it's better to buy treasury bonds. When interest rates start to go up, the people that bought the interest, the, the treasury bonds at the lower interest rate are essentially, you know, worse off. No, 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 no. When interest rates are very high, it's, it's sorry. That's what I meant. When interest rates, what I'm saying is, if you bought the, if you bought the bonds when the interest rates were low, and then the interest rates go higher, right? The people that bought them low are actually in a, in a worse off situation than the people that are buying when interest rates are high. Now, what's important here is what, what he's showing is is that interest rates are starting to go up. This is something that Christian talked about before. Jerome Powell actually tried to increase interest rates because there was problems with inflationary monetary policy. And it was actually Trump at that point in 2018 that was very mad about it, basically saying that they were trying to tank the economy right before the election cycle. And so what ended up happening is, is Jerome Powell started you know, lowering interest rates again. Well, if you look at when SVB started to buy all these 10-year treasuries, part of this is because they're getting an influx of cash because of, because of quantitative easing and then a huge burst uh, because of COVID, right? Where the Federal where the federal Reserve, the Treasury, the $3 trillion with like 0% interest rates. So they've got all this cash. They're looking for a place to park it. And they decide we're going to put a significant portion of this in 10-year treasury bonds that are yielding almost nothing yeah like 1.7 percent what are they banking on when they make that investment they're banking on interest rates never going up yeah is what they're really? banking on wow yeah. because, which because I, I look they, at this going so many people thought interest yeah. rates could never go up the economy can't sustain it the government can't sustain it there's no way that that yeah. the bond market will ever be able to 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 see two three percent interest and by the way we're in a five percent interest rate environment right now yeah but i mean in in you know the summer of 2020 when interest rates had been lowered to zero beginning in March that year, there were people that were saying, oh, well, you know, the, the economy could never sustain an interest rate hike ever again. We're going to be at, I mean, people were talking about negative interest rates Which, at that which point. is just absurd. But, but I mean, this, this goes on to, this is the important, the important takeaway here is because you're, you're looking at this going, wait a second, they just printed $3 trillion. Interest rates are zero. This is not sustainable. You can't do it in perpetuity. There has to be a correction at some point, and that correction is going to come in one of two directions. Either prices are going to go through the roof and people are just going to start like revolting, right? Or the Federal Reserve has to start raising interest rates in, in order to stop all of this speculative investing and everything else that is going on. So one of those two things had to happen, and yet, and yet, 
The investment team at SVB looked at this and said, you know what? We should stick a significant portion of our portfolio, 10-year treasuries. So you can see on the, again, if you're watching by audio, what you see is that the interest rates go down and then they plummet in 2020 because COVID and everything else. They stay like next to zero. And then all of a sudden in 2022, that's when they start to increase and they start to increase drastically in order to deal with what they reported was like eight to 9% inflation. But if you use the early 1980 numbers, it was more like 18% inflation. So they had to deal with that. There was no getting around it anymore because again, at that point, mom and Joe, you know, or, you know, mom and pop are going to start revolting at that point. Cause they're not the ones getting rich through your inflationary monetary policy. They're the ones getting poor because of it. So they had to do it. They start to raise interest rates and let's go ahead and listen to the, the rest here. And then we can kind of cut back in up. This right here is what has caused Silicon Valley Bank so much trouble. That's the increase. Because in keep in mind, rates. this bank was getting a lot of deposits around this time period. All right. They're getting all of these deposits of money from 2017 to 2020. That's when all these companies, all these Silicon Valley startup companies were booming and they're doing really well and they're getting lots of VC money and they had to put that cash somewhere. So this bank's getting a lot of money right here. And then they're investing in treasuries at interest rates right here and here, and even some probably down here, very low interest rates. So this is where their portfolio is. It's in this range. Looks a little messy, but this is from zero to 2%. That's where their portfolio of investments are. That's what they're earning. Then what happens? Jerome Powell comes in trying to combat inflation. He raises interest rates all the way up to four to 5%. As interest rates increase, all the prior loans that they locked in at lower interest rates are worth less money. They're worth less money because now investors have a better option. Instead of buying these loans that are down at 3% or 2% or 4%, they can buy these ones up here at 45 or 5%. So relatively speaking, their entire portfolio, their entire bond portfolio is underwater. Pause. They're in the red. So that's basically the summarization that Carlson explains here. Yeah. Um, and what's incredible is that there's so many people that that genuinely believe treasury bonds are the safest investment ever. Um, no. In fact, you can go look at the past year. The bond market got wiped out last year. And the reason for that is because we had this abnormal period where interest rates have been at basically, ze- with, with the exception of this blip in 2017 and 18, when Jerome Powell had this like fake out where he tried to raise interest rates and then backed off because both the stock market and Donald Trump were, were railing at him for raising interest rates. With the exception of that brief period, we had basically been living in an effective 0% interest rate environment since 2008. But we also know that interest rates needed to go up to fight inflation, right? Yes. Well, and, and not not just to fight inflation. Interest rates needed to go up at some point to put an end to the bubble. Well, can, the we, can we also bubble. say this is also when we when we talk about these terms, the only reason they make sense is because we have centralized banking. Is because we have the Federal Reserve. It's because when they're doing this stuff, they're adversely affecting the entire economy because now instead of individual banks setting interest rates based off of what works for their portfolios and, and cash on hand, we have a, a huge central bank that is now deciding this. And and, and it is it is problematic because the idea is as well, it's going to prevent all these these runs on the bank. Oh, well, bang up job. Right? No, it, it isn't. You're you're actually you're actually amplifying the problems when they get it wrong at the central bank. 
And so, but what this does here, here's what this explains. Here's, here's the takeaway from this. Because all of the, you could always come back and say, well, they still have all these assets. They still have all these bonds. Like their money didn't disappear. It's still there. But here's the problem. If when you come in to get your money, I can't give it to you, I need to start selling assets. Well, if most of my assets are in 10-year treasuries or long-term treasuries, who do I sell those to? Or I, I can't, or well, wait a second. In- I can't wait for them to mature because you want your money now. And then who am I supposed to sell this long-term treasury to? Who wants to buy it when I bought it at a 1.7% interest rate? And now someone buying a bond today is at a 5% interest rate. Like, why would I buy your 1.7% interest rate? Why would I do that? So basically what it is, is they tied up so much of their money in assets that they could not liquefy in order to pay depositors upon request. The other thing too was, is that the assets that they had that weren't in the federal, you know, um, that weren't in federal treasuries were also underwater, right? Because other things that they had invested in within Silicon Valley, I mean, you go look at Silicon Valley, almost every single publicly traded company or even private um, entity that's operating in Silicon Valley is worth less today than they were two or three years ago because the bubble has imploded. Yeah, and and so it's it wasn't even just that because what are they also supposed to do? Are they supposed to sell shares of of other companies that they might hold at a loss? Yeah, right. When they were buying, you know, I, hypothetically speaking, I'm not saying they did, but when they were buying Carvana at three hundred dollars yeah. <laughs> a share, they were supposed to sell it at three dollars a share. Like, I, it, it. So so what happens is is that. On paper, they theoretically have the money to meet the, the the demands. But when people, when enough people rush to the exits to take their money out, because again, these are all venture capitalists in Silicon Valley and they're not doing so hot right now and they need the money because they've also got debts to pay. And again, the cash isn't coming in the way that it used to. And you know, back in the day, you could just run perpetual deficits with a company and your stock would go through the roof, but that's not the case now. You need to make money now. And so when everybody runs to the exits to take the money out, they don't have the ability to to meet that demand. And so what did they try to do? They did two things first. They tried to print shares. They tried to sell shares on the open market. Nobody wanted to buy them. And then they tried to sell the entire bank itself. And then nobody still wanted to buy it. And at that point, the reason nobody wanted to buy the bank was because they looked at that and they were like, that is really sketchy. Yeah. You're trying to sell the entire bank? Like that tells me nobody wants to sell a bank that's insanely <laughs> profitable. Yeah. Right? Healthy healthy banks do not sell themselves in the middle of the night right after trying to to do a stock offering that nobody also wanted to buy as well. Yeah. And so that was the beginning of the end for them. But I I know that we we've talked a little bit about kind of what happened, how they made some bad investment decisions. But the thing that we've been hinting at this entire time, some subtly, some not so subtly, is that there's a reason this happened and it's not entirely because of just this bank. Notice how there were three banks actually that went under in a very short time frame. So that tells us that the problem that was taking place was not just individually, oh, well, they had some dumb people at the bank that made some bad decisions. Uh, absolutely, they did, right? They, uh, no doubt about it. They had some they had some really bad decision-making that was going on. But the fact that you had three banks all fail within a matter of days, hours in some cases, within each other, tells you that, you know what? It wasn't just banks making bad decisions. There was something else at play that allowed for these banks to collapse. And I think, and I believe Nick thinks, that that something else is 
the federal government itself. Yeah. The, the, the entire regulatory structure that's supposed to oversee these. Well, and, and here's what's important. Like, so everything we just discussed, like Larry Summers also said, right? Larry Summers, who, who worked on the Clinton administration, Obama administration, used to be a professor at Harvard. Um, he came back and, and he said, yeah, th- this is, this is pretty simple. You, you, you went, you found yourself in a liquidity trap because you, you had all these long-term treasury, uh, bonds. And, and oh, by the way, you apparently didn't anticipate that the Federal Reserve was going to raise interest rates in order to combat inflation, which again, that's the part where I look at your investment crew and I'm like, what were you thinking? Um, but then the other side of this is Larry Summers comes and, and he makes this comment about how, well, clearly there wasn't a good job. You know, what do you say? It doesn't appear on current facts that a very good uh, job was done regulating and supervising Silicon Valley Bank. And I'm sitting here going, you know what? I, this is the same story that we all heard in 2008 um, or, or in the uh, early 2000s when you had the, the housing crisis, when you had the housing bust, right? And, and it was the same thing like, oh, the problem is, is these, these banks weren't being regulated properly and they passed Dodd-Frank and all these other things. Here's the thing I want everyone to understand. The reason why banks started in, engaging in this sort of like really, really risky um, real estate Uh, loans that they were handing out, that wasn't by accident, right? It wasn't that the banks all decided one day, you know what, we should all do a bunch of subprime mortgages to people that can't pay it back. They didn't do that. What happened is, is the government starting all the way back in Jimmy Carter, but then actually going forward and, and really ramping it up under Clinton, the Community Investment Act. They started a reinvestment. They Act. started basically telling these banks that we're monitoring you, and if you're not giving, and, and they started looking at it demographically, right? Why are you giving out less loans to people of color than you are to white people? It must be because of racism. Well, okay, there, there's implications of that when you're telling a bank that if you don't hand out these mortgages, even if the financial data is not there to back it up, but you tell them we're going to regulate you, we're going to prosecute you, we're going to potentially you know, send you to jail if you don't do this right, people start finding mechanisms in order to hand out those loans. And what was interesting is the government was essentially coming in through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac saying, oh, don't worry, you can hand out all these bad loans, then you can bundle them and you can sell them to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which, oh, by the way, is a public-private entity, right? So they're going to get bailed out. So banks said, all right, well, you're going to prosecute us if we don't make these decisions, so we're going to make them. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cause problems, but we can offload all those assets to somebody else. And then what happened? You had a huge, that, that housing market collapsed, but you also had a problem with the reason why housing uh, prices were skyrocketing is because everyone was telling people build houses, which means the price of lumber, which means the price of plumbing, which means the price of every, all of that was going up at the same time to build these incredibly expensive houses that were not expensive because there was a natural demand in the marketplace. There was a manufactured demand. And the whole reason why I go down this, this rabbit hole right now is to explain that the government created the housing bubble. The government created it. They insisted upon it because owning a house was, was the key to the American dream. No, owning a house is a great financial investment provided that you can actually pay the mortgage. But, it, but if you want to artificially inflate the market to where now you're demanding that a bank hound out a loan to somebody that can't pay for that loan in order to buy a house, you're going to have a whole bunch of assets that all of a sudden are, are problematic for the bank and everybody that's invested in that bank and everybody that's deposited in that bank. So the government had to bail out. And what did people like Chris Dodd 
you know, and Charlie Frank, who were the biggest proponents of the government in inflating this bubble. They're the ones that then came up with the Dodd-Frank bill that said, oh, we're going to solve this by regulating banks more. And by the way, when Barney Frank left office, Barney, not Charlie, he, um, he, he ended up getting a position on the board for Signature Bank, which is one of the three banks that just, went just on. <laughs> so, so we've been through this before in recent history. It's not like this was 100 years ago. We went through this in recent history where the government created perverse incentives. They encouraged banks to engage in behavior that was bad, and then they bailed out the banks. And then they said, oh, but don't worry. We're going to come up with all these new regulations with Dodd-Frank. Well, Dodd-Frank came out with a whole bunch of new regulations. In fact, by last count, um, it created over 27,000 New regulations, 27,000 new regulatory restrictions. It was 849 pages long. That was Dodd-Frank. And the end result has been it's actually decreased the number of smaller banks that have been allowed to open. So they're actually encouraging monopoliz monopolization and concentration within the banking sector. Oh, but don't worry. We're going to be safer now, right? Wrong. Because once again, the federal government engaged in, in creating perverse incentives through inflationary monetary policy. Right. And not only that, but there's already there's already existing perverse incentives with investing in treasuries because the treasury and, and I had all these people yelling at me going, Nick, you're they didn't engage in risky speculative um, investments. They were buying U.S. treasuries. That's the safest thing to buy. You know why they say it's the safest thing to buy? Because the United States, the government is the one entity that can take your money by force in order to pay investors. That's why they say it's the safest. But it's not safe when you buy it at a 1% interest rate and then all of a sudden you're trapped into it for 10 years and now interest rates are 5%. All right, but it, it's this false narrative where to see Larry Summers getting up there with a straight face going, the problem here is we need more regulation and oversight. You had all of the regulations, all of the oversights you could ever possibly hope for that you could dream for and none of it was sufficient to overcome the perverse incentives that government policy created. None of it. All right. Help me understand something. So for what I'm taking is that the federal government creates a playing field where they you know, encourage people to build homes and buy houses and live in prosperity. But it creates a, a, a playing field where investors and banks can take advantage of certain things. So, okay, here's the problem. It's one thing to say, when you say take advantage, and that's what they're all trying to do, like, oh, is these evil banks taking okay. advantage of these situations? Oh, okay, do, do some of them do that? Sure. But if I'm telling you as a bank, if you don't hand out these loans to a degree that I think meets with my equity demands, right? And I don't mean equity as far as money. I mean equity as far as like woke policy, Yeah. right? I'm going to investigate you. I'm going to potentially penalize you. I'm going to fine you. I might run you out of business. Right. Well, then what are you going to do as a bank? Uh, okay, well, I, I don't know what to do. You're forcing me to do something I would never regularly do in the marketplace, but you're telling me I have to do it. So I'm going to make as much money as I possibly can after doing the stupid thing that you've told me to do. Yeah. And, what the, and what the banks did was, in that case, it was, I'm going to invest it all. I'm going to bundle these assets. I'm going to sell them to somebody else as quick as I possibly can. In this case, it was, okay, great. You gave me all this, this money that's just been dumped in from depositors because you printed $3 trillion. I, I don't want to let it all sit here. I need to invest it as quickly as possible into something. Well, you know what? U.S. Treasuries are, are safe. And my gosh, we haven't had any significant interest rate increases since 2008. I, I guess this is a safe place to put it. Yeah, so, so, so that's one half. Nick actually kind of got to the other half of it. But on one half, you have the government is incentivizing through coercive behavior 
for banks to act in, in, in a reckless fashion. Do this or else. But there's another half of this where the government is incentivizing through positive mechanisms yeah. for the, this is the moral hazard part, right? And here's what I mean by this. We saw earlier, and Carlson showed this earlier, about how the revenues for the banks went through the roof, especially banks that, that were invested heavily in Silicon Valley, went through the roof after 2020. And, especially, and, and also going back to the beginning of quantitative easing under Ben Bernanke starting in, in 2011, in 2010, after the great financial crisis, when the government started printing money and injecting it intentionally, we had a podcast yeah. last year on this where I read a letter from Ben Bernanke himself who literally said higher stock prices will translate to economic prosperity. He said that. that, that, that that's not a direct quote. That's me summarizing yeah. him. For but the wealthy. He well, no, said, not just for the no, wealthy. No, like he, he said for everybody. He said higher stock prices will translate to economic prosperity. How do you get higher stock prices? You pump money into the system and you make stocks go up. Stocks only go up, right? And that started over a decade ago at the very tail end of the 2008 crash. It's it, the, the market was wiped out and the government's response was we need to repump the markets again by injecting liquidity into the markets. How are we going to do that? We're going to have the Federal Reserve print money. We're going to buy we're, the Federal Reserve is going to go in there and buy Treasury bonds. And then Congress will have money to hand out to corporations through subsidies or grants or tax benefits, whatever it is. Solyndra, stuff like that. Right. Yeah. And so what happened was, is that beginning in around 2010, 2011, the government went through QE1 and then QE2 and then QE3. And then finally, it was eventually QE infinity. Yeah, quantitative easing. When, when March 2020 hit, and then they kicked it into overdrive. By the way, this was under Trump now, no longer a Democrat in office. This, this goes in both parties. Yeah, it does. Both parties. And then, woe and behold, you have all this money sloshing around the system and it wants to find a home. Well, it's going to find a home in people's bank accounts. And when they're opening them with groups like Silicon Valley Bank, what's the bank supposed to do? Not take the money that customers are trying to give them? Yeah. I'm not defending them because they they did so much wrong. The executive was selling shares at the company. He sold yeah. like three million dollars right before they collapsed. Yeah, we're you, not we're not. By the way, we're not defending the bank. We're saying that there's there's more to this than the corporate greed narrative that that people like Barney Frank and um and Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren, Warren and AOC like to do. Yeah, I, I, I'm not defending them. What I'm saying is that the entire system is being corrupted by the federal government, in particular the Federal Reserve, who is incentivizing reckless, reckless moral hazards to take place because they've printed money, lowered interest rates to zero. Here's another thing that we haven't brought up in today's episode. They lowered the reserve requirements to zero. Yeah, here's what that means. Typically, fractional reserve banking says that you have to, by law, keep a certain percentage in reserve in order to pay people out. They changed that to zero, right? So the people Larry Summers wants to put in charge of even more regulations and more supervision are the same ones that say, ah, you don't got to have anything. Legally, you don't have to have anything. And that's still zero. They lowered it to zero in March 2020. Yeah. As part, at the same time, they threw the money printers into overdrive. So they told banks, by the way, we're going to print a ton of money and inject it into the stock market. So get ready for all your customers all your companies that you deal business with in Silicon Valley, they're going to have billions of dollars in free, freshly printed cash, and they're going to have to store that somewhere. So they're going to store it with you. Get ready for that. Oh, and by the way, none of that money has to stay in your bank account. And because we're printing so much money, you're now incentivized to go out there and chase interest rates wherever you can find them 
because you need to keep up for inflation that's going to be taking place. And these banks have looked at the last 10 years of history and said, well, they're not going to raise interest rates. So our best option is to buy treasury bonds because they're yielding nothing or throw them at, at anything Silicon Valley's pumping out to try to get any sort of return on this money that's just being thrown at us. And we're free to do so because we have no reserve requirements. We don't need to keep a cent in the vaults when people want, want to pay for it. We're not required to do so. And not only that, we've seen from 2008... And from before 2008, that, you know what, if things go wrong, well, first off, this is at least half the federal government's fault. They're going to bail us out. Because so, you don't want to, you don't want to have to explain it. And you're already seeing it on Twitter. I don't care what happens to the investors, but the depositors really should be taken care of. And that is what banks are now starting to count on is that they have a sympathetic, they know they're not sympathetic. They know the bank, the board is not sympathetic, but they know their depositors are. So they have a they have a foil now to go to politicians and be like, well, you're not bailing out the bank. You're bailing out the depositors. You're not even bailing out the investors. Okay, but here's the problem. Now, we do have something called the FDIC, right? And, and the whole purpose of, of the FDIC is to come over uh, on situations like this to, you know, not only, it, it, it's not only the insurance component, right? So the FDIC by law says that your money is federally insured all the way up to the point of $250,000, right? That's, that's how it's established. But the FDIC can actually come over and like take over the bank as well. Right. So that that's what we're seeing happening with the SVB. But this is the funny, this is the interesting part, right? On on Sunday, this is a while back, the Biden administration said that SVB and signature customs will be made whole even if their accounts exceed the two hundred and fifty thousand dollars that is covered under federal law. But there's still a lot of uncertainty about how SVB's collapse could affect the rest of the economy and also how the government's intervention will be received by the public. The Biden administration has underscored that this isn't a bailout, but it's not clear if that's how Americans will see it. And Americans shouldn't see it the way Joe Biden is talking about it because it is effectively a bailout. Now, what they're going to say is, no, 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 no. Banks, right, have to have to spend money in order to go into a pot that the FDIC controls in order to insure depositors, right? So all we're going to do is use that money. It's, it's not a bailout. Two things here that people need to understand. One, whenever the government makes a private entity spend money on something, that increases the cost of business. Increased cost of business costs always get transferred to consumers. Always, 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 always. All right. Two, if you're going to drain that entire account, paying out more than the $250,000 that the, then the insurance covers, what do you do with the account if another bank goes out? Is this just going to be common? Because now every other bank that has problems can look at the federal government like, well, you bailed them out over the $250,000 mark. Why, why not us? So now the only way that you can pay for that is you either need a massive infusion of cash by the federal government that's not covered under the typical practices of that the FDIC. That has to be printed. That, or printed or whatever, taken from a different you know thing than the budget. Or borrowed. Or, yeah, borrowed. Or, or you have to increase the fees that banks have to pay in order to participate with FDIC. So here, here's the problem. That all these people, and, and I'm sorry, this is the part where I just, I want to start cussing. Uh, I want to start, I'm not going to. I'm not going to, but I really want to. And this is why. Because we will say something like that, there's going to be a bailout. Like, you're an idiot. You don't know how FDIC works. It's just these banks that have to pay these fees, and that's what it's going to be pulled from. 
That number is calculated based off of an insurance policy for $250,000. If you drastically increase it, you've sent the message to the entire market that the rules are no longer in place. You will drain the account that you currently have with it. And then how are you going to pay for it all? How are you going to pay for it all? Like, please, please, for the love of God, people on Twitter, manage to think at least two steps ahead in this chess game that is taking place right now with the sort of incentives that are being created, right? Just, just again, some people play chess, some people play checkers, and some people are over there licking windows. And we have a lot of window lickers <laughs> that are apparently are incapable of anticipating what the next step will be if you engage in this sort of policy. So no, they are moving toward a bailout. That's exactly what they're doing. And they're using the depositors as the victims in this scenario. But here's the question I want to ask people from, from a... From a justice perspective, all right, from a from a moral hazard or a negative externality perspective, all of us can sympathize with somebody that is a depositor. They put their money in the bank. They weren't investing. They weren't trying to do it. They just put their money in a bank. They thought it was safe. And then all of a sudden that bank collapses. And now all they can get back is $250,000 out of the bank. We, we can all be sympathetic to, yeah, that stinks that that happened to you. But in what world? Is it morally just to then say, so now what we're going to do is we're going to go to all the people that didn't put their money in this bank. We're going to take some of their money and we're going to give it to you to make you whole. There's nothing just about that. Nothing just about that. Secondly, you've now created a perverse incentive because if you've told banks that if you screw over your depositors and investors, don't worry, we'll save them. There's no incentive for you to actually engage in the sort of self-regulation that is necessary that, that puts you on the hook with your customers because somebody else is going to be responsible for bailing you out. So you're not even going to get the sort of you know increased introspective behavior you would like from other banks to say, oh gosh, we better be careful about not engaging in the same sort of practices that they did. You're not even getting that. You're taking away the, the, the consequences for a bad actor's actions in order to make the depositors whole, which means you're telling other banks, I guess you don't really got to worry about it because somebody else will fit the bill. So this is unjust and it is stupid from an incentive structure component. I did all that without cussing. <laughs> so it's a miracle. But, but economics could be a, ch a game of checkers though, right? And not chess. What? I don't even know where you're going with but this. But you talked about two steps ahead in this chess game. Yeah. But the Federal Reserve politicians, they love to make it an elaborate game of chess when Wait. it could be as simple as... Here, well, here's what... Okay, to that point, here's what I will say. There's a ton of people that are looking at all this going right now. Oh, I didn't realize you were an economist, Nick. I didn't realize you were... I didn't realize you were a banking expert. You know what I am? I'm not an idiot. And, mm -hmm. and, I'm, and I'm literate. And I understand how perverse incentives work. And I understand that if you tell a bad actor, there will be no consequences for your bad actions. You actually incentivize bad actions, especially when there theoretically is a higher degree of profitability from them, right? If, if you're taking the risk and you're offloading it onto somebody else, I understand how that's going to work without knowing all the inner workings of how SVB's investment portfolio looked, right? That's the part where this is far simpler than people want to make it. This was actually one of the whole. This was one of the whole movements within the Austrian school of economics. Was it was saying, you know, the Keynesians and the neo-Keynesians and the classical economists. They keep wanting to try to. They want to treat economics as if it's some sort of elaborate mathematical equation. Yeah. When in reality, it's just about understanding that people respond to incentives. That that's what I was trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> it, it it doesn't have to be that difficult. It's easy to look at some of this stuff and say, and and again, they, they can always find a chart or a mathematical equation that says, well, if everything operates this way, then this will happen. 
The problem is, is all it, all it requires is a couple of people to have different incentives or different motivations or, or different objectives. And I'm not talking about nefarious ones, just different objectives. And all of a sudden your mathematical equation doesn't work. So yeah, the, the frustrating part about all of this is that once again, the government is going to say that the only way that we can save this is by coming in and injecting more money into this situation. But don't worry, we'll create another 27,000 new regulations in order to make it better. When in reality, here's what it comes down to. This is very, very simple. When a bank fails, if it and its investors, and yes, unfortunately, its depositors are forced to, to, have the con to bear the consequences, instead of making other people who didn't do anything wrong bear the consequences, what it does is it encourages better behavior within the entire industry. Because if no one's coming in to save you, you better do your job right. Because otherwise you're going to have a whole lot of, first of all, you're not going to have any customers because they will leave. They won't do business with you if you're engaged in bad business practices. Now people can say all day long, well, how are they supposed to know what the business practices are? Well, I'll tell you this much, 27,000 new regulations certainly didn't make it better. So why don't, why don't we try a system where instead of letting politicians and bureaucrats come up with 27,000 ways to try to manipulate the process in the hopes that something better will happen, instead of doing that, why don't we just say, you know what? If you start a business and you fail that business and your investors are coming after you and you're bankrupt and you have to, that's a pretty, that's a pretty important incentive for you to not do the wrong thing. So we know that the government's response is clearly unhelpful because it creates creates perverse incentives but christian was svb also you know involved in all kinds of woke activism as well oh my gosh i'm so glad that we got to this part <laughs> um <laughs> so i believe it was the head of risk management that was pushing a bunch of of, of equity programs uh, you know, rather rather than looking at their balance sheets and saying, yeah. oh, my gosh, we have no money to pay our depositors if they come asking for money because we're underwater on most of our investments. No, they, they were busy pushing pushing woke equity programs um, right before the entire house of cards ended up imploding. So, can, can I, 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 I mean, I, I have even less sympathy for I had no sympathy for them to begin with because I don't think it's the government's role to be using my money through inflationary monetary policy or debt in order to to bail out private right. corporations. I don't care. I, I don't I don't even care if it's a corporation that I'm invested in. Like but, but like no, I have even less sympathy for them now because no, ideologically banks like Silicon Valley Bank are completely in in cahoots with the left. Which by the way is why if you go on Twitter and you talk about this at all, you will just get bombarded with people on the left that are actually defending this and, and even going so far as to defend TARP, which took place in, in 2008 the and 2009. Relief program. That, that, that was the, the, the bailouts in 2009. When people talk about the bailouts, what yeah. they reference is TARP, um, Troubled okay. Asset Relief Program, which historically, it used to be the economic populists on the left that, that were the most against this. And it was these big business Republicans that, that were in favor of it. But no, you, you've got this complete reversal now where people on the left are def literally defending bank bailouts because the banks are pushing the, the social equity nonsense that, that, that they're pushing for. So, I mean, We've gotten to this point now where the left has just completely abandoned any sense of, of understanding economics. They won't even defend Keynesianism because they don't understand what it is. Yeah. You slap a rainbow on the bank's logo 
or you you celebrate Women's History Month with with a trans woman, and suddenly the people on the left online will just bow down before it and basically say we need to do everything we possibly can to bail these people out. Well, and, and here's what? here's my question: Does this so out of all the companies that were doing business and all the depositors with SVB, I, I'm willing to bet a significant portion of them people of color, maybe members of the LGBTQ community. Um, do do you think? Let me ask you a question. Do you think they're more concerned today with how many um, equity programs that they have within SVB, or do you think they're more concerned that they just lost everything because the risk manager was was too busy running around setting up pride flags everywhere? Like I, this is the part where I fail to understand how completely ignoring reality or pretending that reality can be whatever you want it is, provided that you dream and think hard enough about it, right? That that's more important than actually understanding that there is such a thing as objective reality. There is such a thing as objective truth. There are certain rules to the way that interactions work, to the way that incentives work. And, and when you violate those, okay, no, no amount of activism or little flags you put in your Twitter profile or no amount of pronouns that you, you create out of thin air, none of that Right, it is is going to cover that over when it hits the fan, and people are not better off as a result. So, yeah, I, I think it's, and again, I'm I'm not companies can do what they want with respect to what they want to emphasize, but I think it's important to understand that once again, what we have here was a company that was prioritizing optics over fundamentals. Now, somebody might be able to say, "Well, you can do both." Okay, well, they couldn't. <laughs> like. <laughs> like uh, the, the, the problem is, is that in, in some of the optics that they're now starting to emphasize are things that don't make any sense because when you're prioritizing, when, like, no, I'm going to hire this sort of, of person. I'm going to, I'm going to hire, um, I'm going to hire this person with this skin color because of their skin color. Okay. Well, that doesn't help all the other people with the same skin color that had money invested in your bank. If that person wasn't the best person for the job, not to mention the fact that it's incredibly racist toward those people. By saying, no, 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 you get a job, you, this, this particular person will get a job that they're not necessarily qualified for or good at, right, because we want to make certain equity goals. I, I, I'm sorry, this is just, it's ridiculous, and people are getting hurt by it. And, and I don't want anybody to get hurt by these sort of bad decisions. But when you've decided as a company that we're going to emphasize things that aren't necessarily relevant to our business, not because they're accurate, because I'm sorry, I, I don't buy into a lot of this woke narrative. I just don't buy into it. I, I think everybody should be treated with, with a, a certain basic level of respect. I, I think you should be able to live your life and do things that I would disagree with. And I, and I don't think the government should come in and punish you for it. Like I'm, I'm fine with that. If you're not hurting somebody else, if you're not infringing on their liberties, I'm not going to sit here and, and advocate that the government come in and punish you because you're making a decision with your life that I don't approve of. Right, I'm, I'm not going to do that as long as you're not hurting somebody else in the process. But we have a bunch of companies here that decided, no, 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 the most important thing is for us to push this particular woke agenda. And apparently somebody wasn't managing the shop when they were doing that. And, and again, this, this comes down to this whole idea of if you're going to make decisions for, for potential, you know, very important positions within your company based off of their sexual preferences or their sexual identity, or, or whether or not they, they are, are a person of color, I think you're doing everybody to include the people that identify that way a disservice. 
Because I know when I walk in and I have to, someone's managing my money or someone's about to perform surgery on me or one of my kids or someone needs to show up to protect somebody in a dangerous situation, I want the person best qualified for the job. And you know what? I love it when the best person qualified for the job, you know, they don't got to look like me. That's not what this is about. It's about creating an environment where everybody can rise to the top based off of their content of their character and the merit and productivity of their actions. And this company had decided they wanted to measure it by something else. And I'm sorry, I do think that has an adverse effect on the way companies run. And this is why people like Warren Buffett, who, by the way, not a conservative. Nope. Warren Buffett came out and said this whole DEI, ESG, all of this stuff is a potential violation of a company's fiduciary duty. Because when I deposit money with you or I invest it with you, you have a fiduciary duty to spend that money in a way that is going to be able to provide a return on investment and take care of my investment. And when you decide to emphasize a whole number of other things that have nothing to do and potentially violate that fiduciary duty, right, you should be in trouble for that. But instead, we're living in a world now where none of you're going to be rewarded for it as long as we like the way you did it. Now, you both talked about a potential conspiracy theory that we may talk about towards the end of this episode. What is that, Christian? So um, there's a tweet from Thomas Massey, who is the the great representative from Kentucky in the House of Representatives. Um, Massey, I think, really kind of hit the nail on the head. He, um, he sent this tweet actually this morning as of when we're recording this podcast. And he said... The last five days simplified. A group of wealthy speculators got upset that their money ended up locked into a 10-year obligation at less than 2% return. We talked about this in, in, in today's episode. Yeah. So they convinced government it was in everyone's best interest to help them out of their jam at the expense of everyone else. Here's what I mean by this. You've created the circumstances through both coercive action and and perverse incentives. The government has. The government has. The federal government has, and the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve collectively have, have created a circumstance through coercion and perverse incentives for banks to operate in an extremely reckless behavior. Not only have they said, you have no reserve requirements, you can spend that money however you want, you can invest it in anything you want. They've also said... Oh, and by the way, we're going to print a bunch of money. So now you have extra money to, to throw around at anything you want. And they've said, by the way, if things go south, we will step in and bail you out. You have no incentive to make smart financial decisions at that point because you're playing with other people's money and you pay no consequence for being wrong. At least on paper, you don't think that you will. Um, so what happens when you make a poor financial decision, do you just suffer the consequences of that poor financial decision and you wait 10 years for you to get your money back or you sell prematurely at a loss because the bond market is currently trading at a lower valuation than what you originally bought at? Hell no, you don't wait. Instead, you force a bank run and then you go crawling to the federal government. And you say, please help us out. Please bail us out. Bail out Bail out just the depositors. You know why? You only need to bail out just the depositors because the executives already got off with this. This is why the executives were selling shares of the company like it was some sort of fire sale. The, the CEO sold $3 million right before it collapsed. And by the way, they inflated the share count and then pay the executives that way they had even more shares to sell to the general public at the same time that people like Jim Cramer were recommending it on Mad Money on CNBC. Oh, wow. And so you've now created a scenario where you don't even need to bail out the bank because the people working at the bank already got off with the money. 
So now you get to to lie to people by telling them it's not a bank bailout because the shareholders got wiped out. The only people that got wiped out were the people that didn't already sell. The executives sold. Oh, we're just we're just bailing out the depositors, and if we don't do that, Silicon Valley will collapse. The economy will will collapse. There'll be a run on other banks. It'll it'll be a cascading, you know, avalanche of bank runs, and and the the economy will grind to a halt. You have created a circumstance where a small group of extremely woke idiots have been able to hold the entire country hostage in order for them to get your money, either through additional taxes, additional debt, or additional inflation. But no matter what, all roads lead to Rome. It's your money that they're taking in order to bail out these other woke depositors because many of these these depositors are not ma and pa stores. They're, they're corporations in Silicon Valley, all of which peddle the, the left's narrative on everything. And, and so it, it's just incredible how we've gotten this circumstance where you have a federal government that is completely dominated, certainly outside of the elected branches, right? You know, within the administrative structure, the federal government completely dominated by the left. Silicon Valley, completely dominated by the left. The financial sector, completely dominated by the left. Wall Street, completely dominated by the left. And all of them working with each other in order to help these guys get away with the fact that they made a poor financial decision and now you're going to have to pay for it. You're, let's say you're, all, you're- All the time while Elizabeth Warren, AOC, and the you know coffee shop economics barista will all show up and be like, this is why capitalism doesn't work. This isn't capitalism. Yeah. This is, this is cronyism at best, fascism at worst, but all of it, all of it stems from the same politician, and the same people that are constantly crying for more government intervention, more government control over the economy. These people are just better at working it. These, these are not the capitalists that they're, they're are trying to get themselves bailed out. There's, there's no bailouts in capitalism. There's bailouts in cronyism. And this is why this is why we rail against this all the time. And this is why every once in a while people are like, why aren't you pro-business? I'm pro-free market. You want to get out there. You want to compete. You want to give it your best shot and you succeed. I think you should profit from that. I think you should become insanely wealthy. And I love it because the way you did it was by providing products and services that other people voluntarily paid for. But you want to be the sort of person that lobbies the government to engage in inflationary monetary policy because you have a preferred position where you can you can lobby and get regulatory capture or you can lobby and get bailouts. I'm sorry, you're not a capitalist. You're not a free market advocate. You're someone that's trying to manipulate a system while at the same time you got politicians on the other side misnaming what the problem is so they can get more power for themselves. And all of us should be fed up with it at this point. Right, All these people trying to ride in on a right horse saying, we're going to save you, just give us more power. We're going to save you, just give us more control over the economy. Just, just trust us. Ladies and gentlemen, they did the exact same thing not 20 years ago. And here we are dealing with the repercussions again. Because, I'm sorry, the solution. where do we go from here? The solution to all of this is actually a whole lot simpler. It doesn't come by giving more politicians more power. It doesn't come by giving a closer relationship between corporations, banks, and the politicians that are creating these problems. It really is as simple as the fact that people work off of incentives. And people like this who have gotten really, really good at playing the game are playing it at the expense of the rest of us. 
And they're not doing it because you haven't elected nice enough people that will then, you know, screw those guys and help you out. We need an environment where people are able to compete. And when they succeed, we celebrate with them because they, again, they succeeded by doing a good job providing things that we wanted. And when they fail, we recognize that that is a part of the job. But if you take away the consequences for failure, and if you take away the consequences for failure specifically by punishing people who didn't fail or didn't make bad decisions, then not only have you encouraged the bad decisions, you've disincentivized the good ones. Because what's the point? What's the point of me trying and risking and succeeding if it can all be taken away from me because somebody else has a better lobbyist? And ladies and gentlemen, that isn't capitalism. That's the sort of fascist, croniest policy that is being pushed by the left in this country. And we should all be sick of it. All right. I know we're, we're, at, we're at the end here. Listen, this was a, uh, <laughs> this is as long as you can tell, this is something Christian and I are very passionate about because, um, because there's so many of these superficial explanations that really don't get to the heart of what's going on. And I, I hope we did a good job of being able to explain to you kind of where we're coming from, what we see, kind of the, the underlying causes for what's taking place, what's going on right now, why the government interventions are, are not going to help and are in part to blame for, for why this is happening once again in this cyclical environment that doesn't need to exist. Um, but I, I really think that Thomas Massey really summed up a lot of this. I, I don't, again, I'm not saying that. I don't that necessarily is, think that he's I'm wrong. Not, I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm saying if it did happen, it would not surprise me in the least because this is what happens when you have this, this marrying of government, of politicians, government regulators, and people with a privileged position at the table that they're not supposed to have. And the way you get out of it is through a freer market not a market controlled by even more politicians and bureaucrats. Once again, thank you for joining us. Let us know, uh, let us know how we did on Volley, and we will see you next episode.